The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Hello and welcome to The Limits of Freedom. We all want to be free. Freedom's a good thing. But can you have too much of a good thing? Would we thrive more if we kept some of those chains and constraints that we've tried to shake off? Uh, With us to get to the bottom of this issue, we have Claire Fox, uh, a libertarian writer, the founder of the Institute of Ideas, and a former member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. Uh, Julian Legrand, a former senior policy advisor to Tony Blair and a professor at the London School of Economics. Uh, An expert on choice, I think it'd be fair to say. And Theodore Dalrymple, a psychiatrist, retired prison doctor and a well-known writer and who won a Freedom Prize in 2011. Is that right? Uh, Yes, I think it was in Belgium. So it doesn't Well, count. I'm not sure if that limits the freedom, but anyway. Um, I, think it, I think it counts as an area of expertise. Um, so we'll start in the traditional way, and I'll ask each of our speakers to set out their case in about three minutes, and then we'll begin the discussion. Let's begin with this idea, can we have too much freedom? Claire. Never have too much freedom, and in fact, we have too little freedom, not too much. Um, we often associate... Uh, the erosion of freedom with tyrannical authoritarian regimes and the uh, historically the kind of cry freedom has been against those kind of uh, anti-freedom uh, governments and, and arrangements. But I think that actually here in the UK and more broadly in the Western world, freedom is under attack, but not, in the, uh, not by the usual suspects, so I'm worried about it. So to just whiz through a few of my fears... I'm worried about a kind of new paternalism that takes the form of a kind of nanny state or a nudging state that erodes the notion of us as autonomous decision-making subjects. This is particularly prevalent in the realm of public health, uh, where there are an endless array of experts who think that they know best how we might live our lives and uh, assume that uh, we're incapable of making choices for ourselves 
whether it's around smoking or drinking or what we eat or how we rear our children and so on. Um, and there's also, so there's, there's a, an erosion of the sense that you can trust the populace to make the right decisions. But more importantly, there's an erosion of a very important freedom, which is, is that the freedom to make the wrong decisions. I actually make all the wrong decisions, but I know I'm making them and I don't want anyone to try and stop me. Um, but it's also a question of who decides what the right and the wrong decisions are. And I think that there's this idea set of these experts who basically have decided what the good life is and decided that people like me have got a failure of reasoning and that they will help me make the right decisions against my will, usually behind my back and with force if necessary. Another thing under attack is um, free speech, which is being eroded daily. I've just written a, 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 a new book called I Find That Offensive, and so I, I'm particularly concerned about attacks on free speech. There's obviously formal attacks on free speech um, as we speak, coming largely in the, in the wake of anti-terrorism. But what I'm more interested in is a kind of insidious attacks on free speech and an expansion of the concept of harm to be, go far beyond kind of the physical threat uh, to kind of psychological uh, threat, kind of... A concept creep that suggests that psychological harm of words is, is as damaging as if you, uh, somebody puts a gun to your head. And that, again, I think erodes the sphere in which we are free. And I think we live in an atmosphere in which we are walking on eggshells, frightened to say what we think, frightened to say anything in case somebody says, I find that offensive and so on. My final uh, erosion of, of, of freedom is... Uh, in relation to democracy. I think there's an increasing disillusion with free choice in relation to democracy. Um, uh, for example, Andrew Sullivan, uh, talking about Donald Trump, said democracies end when they are too democratic. And uh, there's this idea, well, oh, my God, if democracy leads to Trump, then democracy is a bad thing. This has also been a part of the debate around the EU referendum. People say, well, I don't like the anti-democratic EU, but at least it, it guarantees our rights. I'd prefer to rely on technocratic um, experts than the demos. Brexit is too risky because, for example, then we would have the decision to decide about what would happen in the future. And God knows we can't be trusted because we're obviously all backwards, smoking, <laughs> drinking, unreasonable lunatics. No doubt freedom comes with burdens and responsibilities and risks. I mean, a free society is far riskier, far more dangerous than an authoritarian one where you're safe and looked after by that lovely benign dictator. Um, I'm with Sartre and Camus and Simone de Beauvoir and the existentialists of knowing that freedom is the scariest thing and a great burden, but bloody hell, I'm grown up enough to cope with it, so give me freedom any time. I'd rather have the risk and a scarier life than being protected and looked after by the dictators. Julian. I'm not going to defend dictators, um, but I am going to defend nannies. Um, basically... Um, uh, the question I really want to address is the, the first of the issues that uh, Claire raised, which is that about the nanny state. And More generally, does the state have a right to intervene to save people from themselves? If someone is undertaking some sort of action, smoking, for example, and it harms nobody else, and let's assume for the moment, for the moment it doesn't harm anybody else, uh, does the state have any kind of right or duty to intervene? Um, well, I think, I think I would argue that it does. And that's because we're now getting a sort of a whole body of evidence that uh, 
uh, that people make mistakes. Um, now, this evidence is coming from um, so-called behavioral economists. Um, behavioral economists, it's funny, uh, behavioral economists are economists who've suddenly seen the light. They've suddenly realized that, uh, on the whole, um, people don't always make sensible, rational decisions, um, that sometimes they do make mistakes. Uh, too much information can, can lead to making mistakes. In Switzerland, um, uh, you have to choose uh, between 90 health insurance plans to decide on your, on your health insurance. I mean, how can anybody remotely do that? Pension plans, I don't know whether anyone's tried to work out sort of their own pension plans. Incredibly difficult, too much information. But the real problem is time, it's distance. David Hume, the 18th century Scottish philosopher, said uh, uh, that there's no error that's so fatal for human nature, in human nature, uh, than the inability to see the future. The 18-year-old, take 18-year-old Amy, picking up a cigarette, does Amy think about what it's going to be like at 65 um, with uh, cancer? Does she, does she think at all about what it's like to be 65? Take Bob starting work at 21, um, uh, thinking about um, pensions, uh, thinking about, uh, well, should I be saving for a pension? I mean, is he remotely going to think what it's going to be like at the age of 65 or the age of 70 or whenever he's going to have to retire <coughs> without, without a pension? Um, it's clear that people do have, a, in some sense, a failure of imagination, a failure to put themselves what, what it's like to be, if you're 18, what it's like to be 65. Um, so I think there is a case, people do make those kind of mistakes, and there's a case for state to intervene on things like pensions and smoking and so on. How should they intervene? Well, I think that, and this is where I would concede something to Claire, uh, I think there's no doubt that when the state does intervene, it reduces people's autonomy or freedom in some senses. There's no doubt about that. I mean, even, um, so what we've got to do is to find the way that reduces the freedom by the least amount. Uh, and that's when I'm quite tempted by the so-called nudge ideas that are also coming out of the behavioural economics stable. Um, the classic one is pensions. Um, that, uh, there's quite a lot of evidence that if you, uh, if you have an opt-in pension scheme about, say, 20% of people will tend to opt in to the pension scheme. Uh, if you have an opt-out pension scheme, so people are automatically enrolled in it and then opt out, again, it's 80-20, but it's 80-20 the other way. 80% stay in the pension scheme. Now, it seems to me by switching, if the government switches from, as indeed our government has done, switches from an opt-in scheme, pension scheme, to an opt-out scheme, uh, then you're actually moving towards... Uh, the. It, it doesn't seem to me you've eroded people's freedom very much. The choices are exactly the same in both cases. Um, and yet you've got an enormous change of behaviour and a change of behaviour that benefits people. Those are the kind of ideas that I think... That I think there are ways in which government can intervene, can make people better off, can improve their well-being, uh, especially over time, and they can do it in ways that don't seriously erode their autonomy or freedom. What uh, Julian has uh, just said... Uh, reminds me that of the greatest freedom that we all want, which is the freedom uh, from consequences of our own actions. But I wanted to begin with three quotations uh, about liberty. And the first is from uh, Thomas Macaulay. If men are to wait for liberty till they become wise and good in slavery, they may indeed wait forever. And the second is from Tocqueville. The man who asks of freedom anything other than itself, is born to be a slave. And the last is from uh, Edmund Burke. 
men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere, and the less of it there is within, the more there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. Now, I'm not sure that all uh, of these three thoughts, which are in their way true and admirable, are actually entirely reconcilable. Macaulay tells us that uh, liberty, like life, has to be plunged into. We can't wait for perfection in ourselves or in other people uh, before we uh, accept freedom. Tocqueville tells us that if the fruits of uh, liberty appall us, we should not pretend that they are not the fruits of true liberty, uh, or that if we had true freedom, then all other desiderata would be met. And we know from historical experience that when people do say that kind of thing, uh, an immense tyranny uh, grows up. And Burke reminds us that unless we exercise some kind of virtue coming from within, we cannot long be free, for authority of one kind or another will impose itself on us. Indeed, we see this coming to pass in quite a marked way. Uh, because we do not place restraints on our own comportment, an increasing plethora of laws has been passed uh, to control us. I believe, in fact, that uh, 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 Mr. Blair's government passed 3,000 laws uh, um, making things illegal. But I was only responsible for 2,000 of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I call internal restraint. Uh, law rushes in where restraint fears to tread. On a recent train ride, uh, which was two city stops long in Sydney, Australia, which you may think that Australians are all out in the out in the, the north end of Australia wrestling uh, crocodiles and so on. It's not true. I counted 16 badgering warnings. This is two stations, took five minutes, some of them with threats of fines if not obeyed. And we're no better in this country. For example, I receive uh, actually regularly uh, letters with the following on the envelope. Don't lose the right to vote. Fill in this form. That's, an, of course, the right to vote is an immense uh, advantage. But on the bottom of the envelope, it says, failure to do so will result in a £1,000 fine. So you accept the benefit or else. Now, clearly, there must be limits to freedom. For example, the prohibition on killing my neighbour or my rival is a real restriction on my freedom. Uh, though the restriction is uh, reciprocated, and therefore I can walk down the street with a certain degree of confidence that I'm not going to be killed. The precise limits to freedom are, in fact, in my belief, very difficult to place. Increasingly, we seem to demand freedom for ourselves, but as I've said, for someone else or everyone else to take the consequences of our exercise of freedom. Um, you'll be disappointed, no doubt, to say that I have no overarching principle that will give you the answer in every case uh, that comes up. Um, but I do notice with alarm uh, the argument that 
people increasingly resort to to justify their behavior, namely that it's not against the law, as if the law should be the arbiter, the entire arbiter of what, we, of what is permissible. If it's legally permissible, it's permissible in every other sense. And I think that is a danger to our freedom. Julian, are we freer? Do we make better decisions when there is some limit to our freedom, whether that's self-imposed or not? I think in some cases, yes, um, and in some cases, no. I mean, typical academic answer, but... Um, um, I mean, in some cases, take the cases, yes, and there's quite a lot of there's interesting work done by a psychologist named Barry Schwartz in the States um, who's looked at people choosing jams, this really important lifetime question about uh, what jam do you want, um, and uh, he's looked at people choosing between six jams and people choosing between 28 jams. Um, and he found that after the choices were made, um, that the people who chose out of the six jams were much happier than the people who chose out of the 28 jams. Um, somehow the, the, the fact there was so much choice had actually uh, it, it increased their opportunities for regret, their opportunities for thinking, oh, I've made a terrible mistake, I really wanted that jam, and I've got this lousy blueberry jam, whatever it is. Um, so... Uh, and, and that relates to my Swiss example, I think, too. Again, I mean, you, you know, if you've got vast numbers of choices to make, then, uh, then your well-being can, prob- can actually go down. That's not an argument against choice. I'm very much in favour of cho- choice, in, particularly in education and healthcare, which I've been a proponent of. Um, but I think the choice should be limited. Claire, I'm going to guess from what you said at the beginning that you wouldn't agree with that, that you don't think limiting our freedom helps us at all. No, but I, 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 it's, maybe, it's maybe best to say that we, we are sometimes happier. I mean, I can't stand the word well-being, but we're probably happier and more satisfied if we have less choice. I mean, as my mother used to say, I was brought up as a happy peasant because I didn't know what I was missing. And when I realised what I was missing, I became more unhappy. I was dissatisfied because I had thought that I was living the pinnacle of life in a village in Ireland um, as a sort of peasant farmer. And then I discovered there was this whole world that I didn't have access to. And so I, I, I'm sure that if you restrict choice, it's like, oh, there's only 26 instead of 28, right? As I'm not missing out as much. But I want to know what I'm missing. In other words, you can be blissfully ignorant, but I don't celebrate ignorance myself. And um, I would always go for more choice. But I think that this point about uh, restricting choice um, is, is an interesting one and restraint and so on. I, I think that there's a danger that what happens is we lose the habit of making moral choices if somebody makes them for us. I mean, we we get into a situation, I mean, if you're kind of following the diktat of the doctor or of the expert in some ways, you you, you are actually outsourcing your moral decision-making because you're just saying, well, I'm just following the advice instead of really actively saying, I will do this or I will do that. And I think you can lose the habit of that. And I thought it was an interesting example about the 18-year-old Amy and the 21-year-old Bob um, because one of the interesting things about young people at the moment um, uh, or, uh, that, 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 if you want, are is, is that actually they're being ultra-sensible because they're following a lot of this advice. I mean, these days you have uh, financial literacy in schools, 18-year-olds, I know, are obsessed with buying houses and pensions, right? 21-year-olds are not going to nightclubs. 
everyone is wearing a kind of one of those Fitbits and counting their steps, counting the units, how much salt do they eat, how much sugar do they eat. I mean, these young people need to get a bloody life. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, of all of the things that I do not want young people to do is to obsessively have an imagination about what it would be like to be 65 or 70. What's the point of being young if you spend your whole time worrying about being old, right? I mean, so... But that's why the state state should do it for you. No, no, I'm saying that they're not... They've got no state restraints. You can have the restraint of fear. You can tell people that everything... They should worry all the time about everything. And you will restrict their behaviour and they will restrict their own behaviour out of fear. And I just think that there's a greater loss there in terms of risk-taking, experimentation and what it means to be a human. And of course it's risky to go out and get off your face when you're 20. I know that, right? But if you don't, well, I mean, just lock them up in the bedroom. I mean, it's just sad. So that's... Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Can I come come back on that? Because, I mean, in a way, that's almost precisely the point, actually. What we're saying is the state should actually do the decision. If you have a system like opt-in or opt-out pension schemes or switching, then then you are allowing the... the, uh, a person concerned to make their own decisions or whatever, you aren't frightening them, you aren't terrifying them, you aren't, uh, you aren't in some way tyrannising them. You just, they've got the choice, they can do it if they want to or not, as the case may be. But they're then not spending the money on getting off their face, are they? They've, they've sacrificed a bit of their freedom because they're then contributing to the pension. Yes, that is so, true. They're, they're, yes, but they, they could decide not to. But they're infantilised by... Free, they're free, free not to. But they're infantilised by the outsourcing of the decision. That's the thing, is we also want them to grow up. So you, Anthony's point about consequence, I mean, I don't want people to not know the consequences, so I'm partly teasing. I mean, I, I think experimentation teaches you the consequences, actually, and that's how you learn. But if, if you sort of make decision-making ever easier, you never kind of practice, use that muscle of decision-making, the hard decisions where you have to take, you know, you have to make a decision, I will save for my pension at some point, you know. Theodore, can I just bring you in, because I'm just interested, you had experience working within the prison system. Yes. Um, Sometimes people end up in prison because they rejected any notion of any constraint at all. I mean, is there a case when sometimes too much freedom is actually damaging people? Well, it is strange that about, I would reckon, about a third of prisoners um, preferred life in prison to life outside, which is very sad. Not long sentences, but at least as a kind of holiday. Um, uh, And, I mean, there were various reasons. They didn't have to choose to do anything, uh, and uh, they didn't have women getting at them for the shoes for their children and things like that. And it became a great relief to them 
uh, to uh, come into prison. And after all, when you consider the activities of our police, you almost have to want to be caught in order to go to prison. So <laughs> there, is, uh, there is an element of that. But I wouldn't like to use that as a model for society as a whole. What seems to me sad is that uh, perfectly ordinary people uh, who, contrary to what people say, are, are not um, incapable uh, through lack of intellect uh, of guiding their own lives uh, can't or, or won't um, uh, because of a lack of uh, often education, lack of family background and so on. So although I, I agree that, uh, uh, that this is an example of people actually abjuring choice, and liking the abjuration of choice, I certainly wouldn't want to use that as a, a model for society. And if we come to something like the choice of jams, shall we say, uh, what I would say is that the real problem here is that people think that the choice of jam is important. <laughs> <laughs> and if they sit there, if they are the kind of people who, having bought a jam, a ponder about the jams they didn't buy. <laughs> OK, well, it seems we can't really escape questions about the state. Um, so let's move on to our next uh, theme, which is this idea of whether we as individuals somehow need the state uh, to limit choice. Now, of course, for long uh, periods of our existence, we didn't, you know, people didn't really have a great deal of freedom at all because there'd be a monarchical system of government, which was essentially very authoritarian, and it would basically tell people what they could and couldn't do, and in a sense, I suppose, set down the rules for what was ethical behaviour and what wasn't. Claire, you've made a dramatic case for freedom and for choice. Is freedom the biggest goal we should have? Is it freedom from the state? Is it the freedom to make wrong choices? I mean, should the state ever come in and nudge us or point us in the right direction? So freedom is the essential ingredient, the bottom core value for me of being a human. I mean, it's what distinguishes us as humans from anyone else. And, and, and that is because it's the point at which we are moral decision makers and we have agency and, and so on and so forth. So it's very important for me. I appreciate and understand that there is a role for a state. I am not, as people often think, they'll say, you're a libertarian, so you think we should abolish traffic lights. I mean, this always comes up. I mean, you don't want any government. No, I'm not saying that. But as Theodore has indicated, I do not think we should only be restrained by the rule of law. I want us to be not infantilised and to make grown-up decisions. So I don't think I need a law that will stop me spitting in your face as I walk out the door or just walking up and kind of yeah, screaming at you irrationally. I mean, I'm a... We can cope, right? We tend to interact with each other and we ought to be able to make those decisions. And I think that we do live in a, a walk-on-by society where people don't sometimes intervene, you know. Uh, young people, uh, you know, misbehaving on, on, on a bus, being rude or whatever, and adults all look the other way. So what I'm saying is the state has an appropriate intervention. We shouldn't rely on the state, however, for all restraint. But the state is becoming more aggrandizing in its powers. So in parts of London, if you walk more than three dogs at a time, you're breaking the law. If you feed the pigeons, you're breaking the law. If you put up posters for lost dogs and cats, 
you're breaking the law. If you have a glass of wine in a park with your friends at a picnic, you're breaking the law. Now, not everywhere, because it depends on the council, but that rule was given by the government to local authorities to police our behaviour. And I think that there is a tyrannical aspect of that which we should be up in arms about. And we're not particularly. And I think that that means that we have become complacent about our own freedoms. So that's where I get nervous. It's I don't blame the state. They'll that, always want to police us. Isn't that because the sort of people who turn up to how the light gets in aren't likely to be affected by any of those orders? Well, that's, well there is a, you, you touch on an interesting point. Although I would have thought the odd person is fed the odd pigeon, taking the odd, <laughs> taking the odd dog out. But anyway, whatever. Right. But I do think there is a bit of a thing, which is, is that very often when I'm talking about free speech, and you're obviously all going to come and hear me talk about free speech after this. But anyway, when, when I talk about free speech, people will say to me, and it's like funny, there's a moment where they say, I absolutely agree with you. You should absolutely have free speech. But it's all very well for people like us. But what about those other people? And it's like, what? So we really believe that there's a mob out there who, if you only let them, for example, hear a racist, that they'll all turn into, you know, members of a racist pogrom. They're incapable of listening to a racist and going, I don't agree with you. Or, uh. But there's always... So I, I, my view is, is that the people who come to When the Light Gets In are no better or worse than anyone else. We are all, as a demos, capable of using our reason. And if you have contempt for your fellow people, you will have contempt for freedom and it will come bite you. Because you might go, I don't want freedom for them, but I'll keep it for me. But guess what? You'll be giving away freedom for all of us. Now, Julian, is it that we need the state to limit our choices? Or is it that it's not a lack of freedom that should be our concern, but it's our lack of choices? If I don't really have a choice about where to send my child to school or where I'm going to go and get um, hospital treatment, that's a lack of freedom, isn't it? Yes, uh, and indeed, um, when I was devising the 3,000 laws that uh, Tony Blair, <laughs> I was actually working on increasing the availability of choice of schools and choice of, of hospitals. And uh, I think that's terribly important. I mean, I think, I think quite the nice thing about this kind of welfare state we have at the moment is that we've managed to preserve elements, um, we've managed to create elements of freedom by allowing people to make choices and so on. Of course, they're limited, and of course, we all know the problems about choosing, choosing schools and hospitals. Nonetheless, there is now choice in the way that there was not uh, 20 or 30 years ago, um, and that seems to me a great improvement um, from the system. Um, but at the same time, we, do, we don't get some of the problems with choice, so let's say completely free choice or absence of state intervention, such as you get in the United States, for example, in healthcare, uh, where you have problems that people just don't have access to care because of financial constraint. We have a system that actually, that by, and you do limit people's choices by actually taxing them. You tax them, and you, uh, but that pays for a national health service free at the point of use and with choices within it. And that seems to me to be exactly the right sort of compromise uh, between the, the claims of freedom, on the other hand, and the frames of social justice, fairness, well-being, on the other by paying my taxes, do I 
somehow then um, absolve myself from having to be responsible for the consequences. So if I do lots of things that will damage my health <coughs> because I paid my taxes, can I then go along and say I've got an entitlement to be uh, treated for the consequences of my actions and my decisions? Uh, I don't think it does absolve you from that responsibility, no. Um, but I do think that... Um, uh, Sorry, can I interrupt? Is that yeah. in theory or in practice? Sorry. Yes, I'm asking you. Is is that uh, I'm absolved in theory or in practice? Because the Uh, two things are not the same. Well, I mean, I'm not quite sure what you mean, but but if you talk about in practice, I think actually the deterrent effects against against becoming ill, the the consequences of damaging oneself uh, through, e.g. smoking or whatever, uh, are sufficiently great that we don't need to add the costs of providing and paying for your own health care on top of it. Um, what I would quite like to see, and it is an idea that, that we flirted with, is the idea of um, uh, that, that putting um, a sin tax on cigarettes. We have a sin tax on cigarettes, um, but using that money to, f- to fund the health care that's uh, created, the need for health care that's created uh, by smoking or whatever. But should doctors be... I mean, actually, let me ask you this, Theodore. Do you think doctors should say to somebody who turns up who's ill because they've smoked you're not entitled to this treatment. I don't think doctors can do that. And it's uh, practically impossible. Anyway. Yes, but I mean, even if it were practically possible, I don't think any doctor could say, go away, you're responsible for your own terrible situation, and unless you pay a lot of money, I'm not going to help you. I don't think, that, I don't think that's a, a possibility. But can I, we're gonna, I, I also think, I mean, it's actually happening, isn't it? I mean, there are serious things now where uh, health trusts are saying we won't give treatment to people because they're brought on their own obesity or, you know, there's kind yes. of, there's serious discussions about this. But I think it's a really... But they're not saying for that reason. They're saying it because they think life expectancy of those people will be low. Hence, on, on grounds of putting your resources where well, you can actually well, improve people's health. Well, there are people you know, who are arguing... It's not because of their moral no, but there are people, No, but there are people who are arguing that the cost, the, the reason why we need to restrict lifestyles in relation to health is because it costs the NHS so much and that these, you know, you said yourself, you know, it's, 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 you can say, well, I smoke, it's my decision, but then it costs the NHS a lot of money. And there's always those discussions. We have to pay the price of obesity, people will say. We have to pay for all of the health care that will come. And the only reason I'm saying that, I think it's just a very mean-spirited view of society. I mean, I, on that basis, you would never... If you haven't got children, you would say, I'm not paying any money towards uh, state schooling. You would say, I, I, you know, the doctor would say, I'm not going to treat you because you've been skiing. It's self-inflicted injury. Uh, you know, nobody's allowed to play rugby anymore. I mean, it, it's which lifestyle? So there's a kind of snobbish distinction, which is the lifestyles that we think self-inflict and then the lifestyles which are obviously inflicting injury, but which we think are good. Well, I, I think on these grounds we should ban sport because sport is easily the commonest cause of injury in uh, Britain and in most other countries, and I'd be wholly in favour of banning sport. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.